vaccines versus variants. The race is on and many countries are falling behind. I mean, we've been seeing uh, across much of the country uh, occupancy rates in intensive care units of 90% plus. That feels like you are trapped. You do not know what to do. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. In the United States, health officials and community advocates are fighting vaccine hesitancy. That's the biggest thing that I hear from the community is, that's great, but none of those folks look like me. So I'm not going to trust this. But there are also issues with access. I mean, for sure, some of the uh, things that were obvious to us, but not obvious to a lot of the folks who are not a part of the disparate community, right? Poor people of color communities. You know, that medical medical attention is hard to get around here. It's all coming up on Petri Dish from Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom. In January of last year, a software engineer in San Antonio, Texas, named Deval Babu, took a trip to India with his wife and brand new baby girl. She became three months old, and um, since none of our parents were here, to see her, we were like, okay, let's go to our parents um, and uh, have them meet with the granddaughter. So we went to India. They planned a 21-day vacation in their home state of Gujarat in the city of Ahmedabad. Deval was so proud to show off his little family and so happy to visit his home country. India is a very diversified country with culture, languages, so many religious beliefs. It's it's different. In India, love and affection takes precedence before money sometimes. I would say that. Deval suspects a lot of Americans have misperceptions about what India is really like. It's hot in Ahmedabad, like San Antonio, Deval says. And monsoon season is spectacular. That's the beautiful season that you want to look forward to, where rain falls and you'll see the beautiful, beautiful blooms of the small, small flowers and the fresh scent of the rain. That is mesmerizing. That, uh, that is so beautiful. Deval loves India and he loves his family there. So he was happy to be spending three weeks there last year with plans to return to San Antonio in February. But while they were there, the U.S. consulate in Mumbai asked for more documents before it would approve Deval and his family's return to the U.S. Then, in March, yeah, the pandemic, American consulates in India and around the world closed and 21 days became 16 months. That feels like... You are trapped. You do not know what to do. There was no light at the end of the tunnel until January. That's when the consulate started working on his paperwork again. Then in April, the Babus were allowed to come home to San Antonio. They started getting resettled again. Their friends had packed up their old apartment and put their stuff in storage when they were stranded in India. I was just walking around and I couldn't take breath. I was gasping for air. So I asked my wife to drop me to the ER and they checked my oxygen levels. It was less than 86 when I walked. 
so they monitored my oxygen level they did all the work up they needed to do and uh, they found some infections on my lungs so they gave me uh, a heavy uh, heavy medicines along with uh, oxygen for a while and they monitored it for 24 hours and then let me go after 16 months in india during a pandemic deval came home to san antonio and got covid and his father back in india well he became one of the more than 9.6 million new covid cases reported in the last month in that country according to the johns hopkins coronavirus resource center and my dad is is not a young person he's 67 years old and he has a high diabetes high blood pressure situation so that that background um, stress is always there thinking about him talking to him day and night whether he feels okay everything's taken care of he got his meds anything he needs so it's it's it's, it's just overwhelming sometimes Deval is here and he can't help him a lot of our neighbors are helping them out like anything they call them that hey do you need some fresh vegetables do you need some groceries do you need some milk they just come come over to the house and drop it at the doorstep uh, so everybody's fine even same thing for my dad he needs to go get some injections so they can give give, give him the right to go to the hospitals which for me it's a blessing people are very helpful very very helpful at this point Tavall does what he can to help manage his dad's care from here in addition to all the other things they have to do to rebuild their american lives we had to find an apartment we had to move our stuff and then still in the back of the conscience india is there like how my parents doing i wake up in the morning and i call my dad like hey dad how how you feeling how was your session go today how was your injection everything okay any you need any medicine do you need anything uh do you need any money from texas public radio and the texas newsroom this is petri dish i'm bonnie petri right now more than a year into this pandemic india is being crushed under a surge of covid cases and deaths thousands of deaths every day while the US has more vaccine than it's using the pandemic is now being experienced unevenly across the country and across the globe with some people just deciding it's over while others are experiencing the very worst that covid virus can do so what in may 2021 is the state of the pandemic Today we find out. We'll return to India in a moment, but before we return our focus to that side of the planet, let's head to Brazil. We're on a street in Rio de Janeiro. The capital city is home to more than 6 and a half million people, and for some, daily life has returned to normal, perhaps prematurely. from the coronavirus infections are surging overwhelming hospitals and funeral services as npr's philip reeves reports many fear that philip reeves is in rio de janeiro philip good morning good morning wow what's it like to be in brazil right now 
It's very, very sad, Steve, because we're witnessing a tragedy. And oxygen supplies are so scarce that people have died of suffocation in their hospital beds. And Pierce Philip Reeves In mid-April, we spoke with Philip Reeves, who covers South America for NPR. Back then, daily death counts were consistently in the thousands, and new cases were just starting to drop. They also introduced a bunch of restrictions and curfews and so on to stop people moving around with limited success. But it does appear that that has led the number of cases right now to to, to dip a little bit. But uh, no one is optimistic about the direction in which this is going. The trends have continued to slowly drop, but these numbers are still much, much higher than they were during any other surge over the past year. One reason? The so-called P1 variant, which is believed to have originated in Brazil. The P1 variant doesn't appear to be more deadly than other SARS-CoV-2 variants, but it is more contagious. It has put a massive strain on the Brazilian healthcare system. I mean, we've been seeing uh, in, across much of the country uh, occupancy rates in intensive care units of 90% plus, and in some cases of 100%. They're completely overwhelmed and full. They've had to transfer patients out. And to compound their problems, there have been real issues over equipment, uh, particularly sedatives for patients that are in intensive care who are being put onto mechanical ventilators uh, and also uh, muscle relaxants, both of which are necessary. Without sedatives and muscle relaxants, the experience of being on a ventilator is excruciating. And that's not the only shortage in the country. Yes, there is a demand for vaccines, and no, there is not enough of the vaccine to meet the demand. This is Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro expressing skepticism about Pfizer's lack of liability for any side effects. He says the company isn't responsible if you turn into a crocodile. Bolsonaro's remark about Uh, the possibility that vaccines might turn you into a crocodile was a joke, but he has done a lot of other stuff that wasn't intended to be funny. Protracted negotiations, cancelled orders and other delays have hampered the country's vaccine push. And this means the country has struggled to get a first dose into even 20 percent of the population. That's the first dose. The number who've been vaccinated with the second dose is much smaller. And that's significant because the vaccine most used here is Coronavac, which is Chinese made. And the protection it offers after the first dose is virtually nothing. It's very low. So that's the state of things in Brazil. Lots of virus, not a lot of vaccine. The spread of the COVID-19 virus has led to more than 15 million reported cases and more than 400,000 deaths in Brazil, according to data tracked by Johns Hopkins University. Brazil has suffered the second most reported COVID deaths in the world, trailing only the United States. 
With so much virus still circulating in such big populations, mutations are almost inevitable. More contagious variants have emerged all over the world, including Brazil and India. So let's go back to San Antonio software engineer, Deval Babu. His dad in India got his last remdesivir treatment last week. He's had five doses of the antiviral. It's, it's not cheap, and this is out of your pocket. Uh, the health system in India, it's completely different than in here. And uh, it's, it's, it's bad. But it's, it's extremely tough in the country like India. But Deval was willing to do whatever it took to keep his father out of the hospital. That's because hospitals are overwhelmed there. NPR reports that in New Delhi, 12 patients died at a hospital after the facility ran out of medical oxygen. A tanker delivery arrived just 90 minutes late. No, that doesn't surprise me. Right now, government system is... A- under extremely, extremely pressure right now. It, it scares me right now. It literally scares me. It's difficult for Deval to be here in the U.S. now after trying desperately to get back here for 16 months. But now his dad is sick. His mom is at risk and his country is being crushed by COVID-19. I asked him to describe how this all makes him feel. I do not have words to describe that feeling. Honestly, I do not. You know, it's a bitter irony that India finds itself submerged in this COVID surge as the United States surpasses 100 million people fully vaccinated. See, India is the world's largest vaccine producer. The Shoemaker's children have no shoes. Just over 34 million of India's more than 1.3 billion people, that's just 2.5% of India's population, is fully vaccinated against the COVID virus, according to the Johns Hopkins vaccine tracker. Deval's dad is among them. Deval made sure of that before he left. Luckily, he did took both the COVID vaccine shot. He just took the second shot So before his immunity could build up perfectly fine uh, after second shot, he got the COVID. So Deval's dad got COVID just after his second shot in that window before you get full immunity. But the fact that he had both shots may be what is saving his life. Remember, Deval's dad is 67. He has diabetes. He's insulin dependent and he has high blood pressure. They said that it's amazingly good that you have got the COVID vaccine that could help you with this. But India is facing huge hurdles to getting the remaining 98% of the population vaccinated, not the least of which is the surge itself. Because you don't want to go to take the shot and get the COVID. You don't want to stay in the line for getting the shot while somebody's affected and giving you the COVID. So, so that's the thing. People are, people are afraid like that. People don't want to gather at mass vaccination sites because they don't want to be exposed to the virus. And even if they were willing to go, well, there's a shortage of vaccine. 
The Serum Institute of India, the largest vaccine maker in the country, is having production problems, and the CEO says the country's shortage of vaccine for India will continue through July. He tweeted out this statement that, among other things, quote, we need to understand the population of India is huge and to produce enough doses for all adults is not an easy task. So the virus in India spreads unchecked with a worrying variant, B1617, sometimes referred to as the double mutant variant, being the most common variant there. And because of all this, the United States has decided to restrict Indian nationals from flying into U.S. airports. So if Duvall's dad took a turn for the worse or his mom got sick, he could go there and be with them, but he might not be able to come back again. But God forbid, if that happened, Duvall says he would go back. They gave me this beautiful life. I, If I wouldn't be there, then who will be? So, yeah. When Petri Dish continues, while variants hold several countries tightly in their grasps, vaccines are flowing in the U.S. But not everyone is getting them for a lot of different reasons. More next. From breakthroughs in science and technology to explorations of humanity, THINK is an opportunity to take a deep dive into the topics you're most curious about. We bring you discussions with philosophers, authors, public figures, and policymakers, the people who influence us in ways we don't always see. I'm Chris Boyd, and I hope you'll join us next time on THINK. Welcome back to Petri Dish from Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom. I'm Bonnie Petrie. In early April, Petri Dish producer Dominic Anthony Walsh traveled to San Antonio's largest arena, the Alamo Dome, for a volunteer shift at a mass vaccination site. You see, at the time, there was still more demand than supply of vaccines, but If you worked a volunteer shift with certain vaccine providers, you could jump ahead of the line. Let's bring Dominic in. Hi, Dominic. Hey, Bonnie. Hey, so what are we hearing right now? You're hearing the sound of me grabbing blank medical forms, attaching them to a clipboard, and placing them in a box. And after doing all this hard work... Yeah, so I, I did this work, this very hard work for about five and a half hours. <laughs> ID and QR code? Yeah. First or second shot? This is my first. And then I drove to the entrance of this site where oh, I showed a QR idea. code on my phone. And then a volunteer handed me one of those forms already attached to a clipboard. How convenient. All right, I got four pages of stuff to fill out, so... One and I drove from one temporary pavilion to another. Hello, hey. first dose, correct? Yes. Okay, here's his card. Okay. This will be shot record on the other side. Name and date of birth when you get a chance. And just to Only give you a picture of the scene, this is all happening right outside the Alamo Dome near downtown San Antonio. Which is a huge venue, right? Usually used for concerts and sporting events. 
Right, right. But honestly, a year into this thing, this big line of cars, the emergency vehicles, and scattered medical tents all around the parking lot, after a full year of this, you know, it doesn't feel that out of place, this kind of repurposed cityscape. Right. It's kind of the new normal, really. Yeah, yeah. What's going on? What you going to do? Hold your sleeve up for me and actually relax your arm down by the sign. Like so many of our landmarks and community spaces, the Alamo Dome has essentially been transformed. So that this can happen. John. Medicine. You are done. Here's that. We're going to watch you for the next 15 minutes. So after this, you can come down to the So, Dominic Anthony Walsh. Bonnie Petrie. Well, that wasn't your only visit to the Alamo Dome, right? Right. I, uh, I actually stopped by just a few days later. I hopped in a golf cart with Marty Garcia. Marty Garcia, and I am the uh, Strategic National Stockpile Coordinator for the city of San Antonio. Oh, Strategic National Stockpile Coordinator. So he's been busy. His official fancy job description is to distribute and dispense medical countermeasures. And that's including uh, medical equipment, medical supplies, uh, vaccines, antivirals, uh, anything for medical emergencies. Uh, in my off time, we are planning and preparing for uh, disasters or any kind of emergencies. Literally any kind of emergency. He just wanted to explosions, hurricanes. Pandemics. Right. But a lot of his work starts before an emergency even happened. So so you mentioned that in normal times you're doing emergency preparedness. Yeah, is, we, is this type of site something that y'all had prepared for? Or is this something that was completely new that y'all just did this year? No, honestly, we, uh, we planned... Uh, I mean, not for COVID-19, right? you know, we, we plan for maybe some kind of virus or some disease coming in and we have to vaccinate patients. Uh, so the Alamo Dome is actually one site. Someone turned into the wrong parking lot. See, over here, in, in lot B. If you, see, see right here, just make a right. But what Marty was starting to say is that they've been preparing for this for a while. They've even run drills where they pretend San Antonio was hit by anthrax and people have to come to the Alamo Dome to get treated. And the same setup we have here is the same setup we had we had in like years back we've done this. So uh, the SNS is, is really nothing new. Uh, another person turned into the wrong parking lot. There's some confusion going on there. A bit. I actually turned into the wrong parking lot when I volunteered and then went to the wrong parking lot when I got my first shot. Okay, so really quickly, just sort of paint the picture for this. What does this site look like? Yeah, so I mean, like we said, it's a stadium. So imagine next to the stadium, two big parking lots all along one road. And there's a line of cars snaking from this first lot onto the street behind some traffic cones and into the second. So we've got this snaking line of cars from one parking lot to another. Right. The first lot is more of just like a gathering area where you enter the line, but no vaccines in that first lot. So when I got my second dose, that lot was actually closed. So the line is much, much shorter this time, like just way fewer people. It is later in the day, but I mean, this kind of also matches up with what we've been hearing about supply exceeding demand. Yeah, I mean, Alamo Dome is handing out shots without an appointment if you just show up during certain hours, right? Right, right. So I was able to enter the main vaccine lot directly without waiting. 
Hey, how's it going? You here for your first or second? Second. And then I pulled forward a little bit more till I was under this huge tent next to all the other cars. All right, just relax your arm. There we go. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that's that. So I'm fully vaccinated and I know I felt, you know, sort of overwhelmed by emotion. But how do you feel being fully vaccinated? You know, I had a minor fever, a little fatigue, but it didn't last long. And, you know, yeah, it's cool. But there is actually another feeling. Oh, an emotion, if you will. Okay. a little bit of guilt. Back to my conversation with Marty Garcia, I told him about what exactly my volunteering shift consisted of, the thing that allowed me to get my vaccine. Uh, so, I mean, it, it feels kind of weird because basically my position, I was standing in one spot for, you know, six hours, picking up forms and putting it in a clipboard. And so I was like, you know, I understand that this is helping in some way, but I was like, does this deserve a vaccine? Like that, I felt, I felt, I felt almost weird getting a vaccine out of it. Yeah, you're working inside a clinic basically, you know, so patients coming in and receiving the vaccine, you know, they do get screened in the first tent, but you, you just never know. Since you're working in a clinical setting, even though it's outside, uh, we do ask like everybody get vaccinated, you know, even, even our employees, Metro Health employees, you know, we have to be vaccinated to work this clinic or anywhere close to patients. And I'd reckon you were in tent three, probably up there, yeah, right? Yeah, tent three on the so right. So you were like yeah. with the vehicles too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, it just, like, it definitely felt like part of me was like, you know, what, like 20% of Texans have now been, been vaccinated? I believe so, yeah. Quick note, that was in April. Now it's closer to 30% fully vaccinated, almost halfway to herd immunity. Anyway, back to Dominic. It feels weird to be at the front of that line by virtue of having done the clipboard thing. Like, that was that was one thing that I kind of, in my mind, I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. Like, I kind of, I kind of feel yeah. weird. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, you know, just being here volunteering, then you get your vaccine, whereas, you know, some people have trouble registering online or you're trying to get here. Um, and versus like people like you who are doing this as part of their job versus yeah. like kind of just doing the good thing one time mm -hmm. to get the vaccine. Yeah. Hey, did you need a ride back up there? We got interrupted, but I decided to chat more about this guilty feeling with a pro. I'm Jason Morrow, and I'm a physician at University Health System and UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Morrow practices palliative care. He consults as a clinical ethicist, and he teaches ethics and communication. So he spends a lot of time thinking about the bedrock principles of medical ethics. Key among the principles is um, really promoting public safety and minimizing harm to the public. So the context here for that principle is really important. So I presented my guilty conscience for a judgment about 20 minutes into the conversation. I told him about how I volunteered not out of the goodness of my heart, but solely to get a shot in my arm. The, the mental framework I kind of thought, of, thought about um, shortly after was like, if you were to scale this up, like if everyone was to do what I'm doing, it wouldn't create problems, I think. Um, like it wouldn't create new problems, therefore it, it is okay. <laughs> so no, that can't be the only way you define right and wrong. It's true that if you imagine other people doing what you do and it's going to lead to disastrous consequences, 
And then you also imagine that it's likely that a lot of people could do what you do and it will lead to disastrous consequences. Then it's wrong. Right. That that so far, so good. Right. But that can't be the only test. Because, you know, the fundamental concepts of ethical behavior really have to do with integrity and promises and truthfulness, things that are really not directly tied to consequences. So, Dominic, it seems like your ethical framework may be built on a bit of a faulty foundation. Yeah, I know. But in my defense, and I told Jason Morrow about this too, I did intentionally wait to volunteer to cut in line. I waited until vaccines were open to everyone above the age of 16. Oh, so you could have cut in line sooner by volunteering, but you chose not to. So you make the point that you got your vaccine after eligibility was opened. That's relatively non-controversial. So let's take the example you mentioned of other people who, as it were, were not eligible, right? They were not phased. They were not identified as being at high risk of harm or high risk of exposure. Dominic, did you snitch on your friends to the clinical ethicist? I didn't name names, but I may have mentioned that I know people who, like me, volunteered in order to get the vaccine, but they did it before they would have otherwise been eligible. Am I more ethical than them? (laughs) So let's say you have somebody who is not over age 65, not over age 55, does not have a chronic medical condition that puts them at risk for harm, is not a frontline healthcare worker, and so has to wait another month, two months, three months before they would become eligible for the vaccine. And lo and behold, an opportunity comes up where locally they can volunteer, do good service, and through this sort of loophole, become vaccine eligible right on the site. So I wouldn't fault the individual for doing that. That's taking advantage of an existing loophole. No ethics points for you, young man. Yeah, so my ethical framework is flawed. I snitched on my friends, and now I find out my little performance of patience wasn't even necessary. And here I thought you were an angel. I never claimed I was, but I I do want to let Jason Morrow finish his thought. He was just saying it's not necessarily bad for someone to take advantage of a loophole that's widely available. It's an existing mechanism. It's accessible to everybody. Uh, So go for it. Do I have a problem with the program set up, (laughs) the vaccine holders, setting it up a mechanism where people can basically jump in line, even though they're low risk for harm? Yeah, got a little bit of problem with that. I mean, it's not the worst problem. It's not the worst problem because the actual activity these people are doing is volunteering to help the cause. Right. So it's kind of like they're paying it forward. He says, especially early on, when it was a zero sum game among the most vulnerable populations, vaccine providers allowing this one and done volunteer approach maybe was not ideal. You can make it better by making it not so much a one and done by making it something that if you're going to volunteer once that pays you down, but then you also owe other time and you do other services or Uh, If the state was thinking to themselves, you know, in the very near future, we're going to let, say, essential workers, however they define it, become vaccinated. What they could do is say, we're going to let volunteer essential workers come in and they can get it a little ahead of schedule by volunteering. So they could 
They could define more narrowly who is eligible to volunteer, even if it's not as narrow as the existing phase. That might be one, another way to make it make it better. So at this point, it's really too late in the U.S. to put these ideas into practice because vaccine eligibility now is wide open and most places have more supply than demand. Yeah, but not in other countries. And, you know, for the U.S., there's always next time. Still, with vaccine eligibility wide open now in the U.S., even including healthy teens, not everyone is getting them. We'll talk about vaccine hesitancy and vaccine access next. Stay with us. Hunger is at multi-generational highs. We've never experienced food insecurity at this level since we've been tracking the data you know, for the last 20 years. What does it mean for people living it here in Texas? I'm Paul Flavin. We find out on the first episode of The Shakeout, TPR's new podcast charting the economic destruction of COVID-19. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Petri Dish from Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Members of the United States Congress and the Cabinet, distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, while the uh, setting tonight is familiar, this gathering is just a little bit different. A reminder of the extraordinary times we're in. Hundreds of Americans continue to die every day from COVID-19. At least 900 died on the day President Biden addressed a joint session of Congress last month. He focused, though, on the more positive developments. After I promised we'd get 100 million COVID-19 vaccine shots into people's arms in 100 days, we will have provided over 220 million COVID shots in those 100 days. The country was already on track to reach 100 million COVID-19 shots within 100 days when Biden took office. When the pace continued to increase, the administration bumped up that goal. The promises matched the existing pace of vaccinations. When I was sworn in on January 20th, less than 1% of the seniors in America are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. 100 days later, 70% of seniors in America, over 65, are protected, fully protected. Senior deaths from COVID-19 are down 80% since January, down 80% because of all of you. And more than half of all the adults in America have gotten at least one shot. So considering those numbers, what is the state of the pandemic in the United States? Yeah, there's been significant improvement in terms of reaching herd immunity. So the APM Research Lab actually calculates that in two different ways. That's Christine Liao, data journalist with APM Research Lab, which is tracking the country's journey toward herd immunity based on two scenarios. First, we look at the vaccination rate since mid-December. 
this scenario calculates herd immunity on a really broad scope. It's basically asking when herd immunity will be reached, not based on shots per day or per week, but rather total shots over the total amount of time since the vaccine rollout started. So obviously that rate is going to be much slower than the if we just calculate like the current rate because of the slow progress in the first month especially. So based on this broad overall average pace, the U.S. will reach the higher threshold of herd immunity, vaccinating 85% of the population for this scenario by September. But in better news, if we calculate the rate from the last two weeks, That's the second scenario. When we spoke to Liao in mid-April, most of the country was set to reach herd immunity by mid-August, based on this more narrow two-week pace of vaccinations. This scenario also uses the lower end of the herd immunity definition, 70%. But notice, we just said most of the country. The data shows that all states are on track to reach 70% vaccinated by August, except for Mississippi. Again, that was mid-April. The country as a whole is now slated to reach 70% by July, based on this scenario. But there is some not-so-good news in there. North Dakota, Wyoming, West Virginia, and Louisiana have now joined Mississippi. Based on the two-week rate of vaccines in those states, those populations won't reach herd immunity until sometime next year. So we just threw a ton of numbers at you. I'm sorry about that. So let's run the key numbers down again. 70% vaccination rate nationwide by July based on the two-week pace of vaccinations. 85% vaccination rate by September based on the overall pace since vaccines started flowing. So yeah, a lot of numbers. More digits in the surge of data we've all tracked over the past year. They help, right? They're useful milestones as we track our progress towards a return to some kind of normal. But it's also important to ask what data we're missing, right? What are we missing to examine where the data portrait of the vaccine race might be a bit too monochromatic to capture the rich detail of reality? Yeah, I think the initial problem and like just holes in the data, the biggest thing is with race and ethnicity. A lot of states don't report that data. More than a dozen states still don't report race or ethnicity for vaccinations. Data journalists ran into the same issue with COVID deaths, although Christine says that's improved. Initially, we only knew the data for race and ethnicity for 38% of all deaths, and now we know that data for 94% of all deaths. So there's been improvement in that regard. APM Research Lab put together an analysis of that mortality data by race and ethnicity called the color of coronavirus. Adjusting for age, the analysis found, quote, Pacific Islander 
Latino, Indigenous, and Black Americans all have a COVID-19 death rate of double or more that of white and Asian Americans. The vaccine rollout has primarily targeted specific age or health groups. Most public health organizations have used some type of demographic targeted messaging. But overall, a person's place in line wasn't directly determined by their race or ethnicity. So is the vaccine reaching the hardest hit groups? There's a lot of correlation specifically with the Black and Latino populations. So those two populations, they have some of the highest death rates, um, especially when considering age. But they're also the two groups that are lagging behind in terms of getting vaccinated. About 25% of Black people and about 27% of Latino people compared to nearly 40% of white people as of APM Research Lab's latest analysis on May 3rd. But remember, more than a dozen states don't even track this data. So again, a lot of numbers. But some key takeaways. The flow of vaccine is slowing in many states. There's more supply then there is demand. For sure, there's some vaccine hesitancy and there's some straight-up vaccine resistance. But there's also an issue with lack of access. After all, polling shows little difference between hesitancy among white and Black Americans, even though white Americans are currently vaccinated at a higher rate. That looks more like an access issue than a hesitancy issue. How many people am I registering today? Two. Awesome. All right, it's going to be at the Alamo Dome, Lot A. Uh, it's going to be the uh, right across the street from the Bill Miller's uh, office at Chavez. Okay. okay. The folks at San Antonio's health department, Metro Health, knew there would be barriers to vaccine access for the city's Latino and its black population. So they started doing door-to-door outreach pretty early on. My name is Joaquin Abrego. I am a community health worker with the city of San Antonio's Metropolitan Health District, and the program's called Healthy Neighborhoods. On this day, way back in January, Abrego and other community health workers were fanning out on the city's working class west side, telling people how to get their shots and signing them up for appointments. They were block walking and knocking on doors. Abrego says people in these neighborhoods prefer a visit to a phone call. I think that, of course, people seem to really like the, to put the vases to, to, the, to the name, right? So when they see the person, it's well-received. It's when they have to look it up on the Internet or watch it on TVs where it's, it's not so welcome. So to see an actual person, for, for us, it's a lot more well-received. These block walkers have been trying to improve vaccine access in San Antonio's medically underserved communities where they might not have the Internet or know how to use it, where there might be some sort of language barriers, where work hours might conflict with clinic hours or where transportation might be a problem. They've been doing this for months because lack of access to life-saving vaccines is a small part of a much larger, long-standing problem in neighborhoods like this one? I mean, for sure, some some of the uh, things that, you know, I guess 
you know, were, were obvious to us, but not obvious to a lot of the, of maybe folks who are not a part of the disparate community, right? Uh, poor people of color communities, you know, that medical, medical attention is hard to get around here. When it comes to COVID attention, when it comes to uh, COVID vaccines, we're already seeing that we already know that we're more likely not going to get the vaccine until the end. The actual numbers back up Abrego's concerns. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, as of May 10th, in Texas, 42% of vaccines have gone to white people who make up 41% of the population. According to Kaiser, Hispanic people make up 40% of the population but have only gotten 33% of the vaccines. And black people make up 12% of the state's population, but have gotten only 8% of the vaccine share. So we've heard a lot about how vaccination rates are lower among black and Latino Texans because they're hesitant, right? The story is they're not sure they trust the government. So they're doing a wait and see about the whole thing. But the folks on San Antonio's west side don't seem too hesitant if someone they trust reaches out to them. So is that really why vaccine rates are lower in non-white communities? On December 26th, when we first started vaccinating and I was in this huge hub vaccinating a, a bunch of elderly people, and I saw that they were there with their walking sticks and their walkers and their wheelchairs. Dr. Ivan Melendez, the health authority for Hidalgo County, which experienced a relentless, deadly COVID surge last summer, says he's not seen very much vaccine hesitancy at all. Some of them didn't know where they were. Uh, some were, were cradling their spouse of 50, 60 years. And I saw these folks and I saw that in the previous months, uh, the vast majority would definitely have died. Uh, and I was looking at them and I saw the will and the power of the human spirit that even even as we age and get closer to death, we're going to fight. Even when that coffin is being closed, we're trying to kick it open. And uh, I started to cry. As of May 8th, according to the Texas Tribune, nearly 36 percent of the people who live in Hidalgo County are fully vaccinated compared to just 30 percent statewide. According to the Census Bureau, more than 90 percent of the population of Hidalgo County identifies as Hispanic or Latino. So where's this vaccine hesitancy? Certainly, I believe that there is some of that stuff going on, but a, a, min a minority and I think a good example is before the vaccine came out, we were all hearing about 40% of Hispanics uh, were not interested in the vaccine or were concerned about it. We didn't see that. Are we still getting those those comments about this was invented and made up so that big farm could make money off the treatment plant? Of course. But the vast majority of people down here, just like where you live and where your listeners are, just concerned about getting their kids to school and going to work and, and living their lives. So have we seen a resistance? Yes. Do I think it's extraordinarily larger than other states? No. Resistance wasn't a problem, but access was. The biggest issue that we ran into was people that were physically unable to stand in lines, people that didn't have um, connectivity with Wi-Fi to register, uh, people that uh, couldn't do it physically. As the week turns into a month, six weeks, seven weeks, we started having drive-by programs vaccination programs, vaccinations on Saturday and Sunday, 
school vaccination programs. And so anyone who wants a vaccine right now, it's not a problem uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday or after work or during work. It's quick. But now Hidalgo County, like much of the rest of the country, has vaccinated most of those who are eager to get the shots. The low-hanging fruit has all been picked. And now we're getting vaccines that we're having a hard time uh, putting in people's arms because the demand is definitely uh, less than it was, uh, you know, even three weeks ago. We used to fill up probably in about uh, five, ten minutes. We'd fill up 6,000 spots. Now uh, it takes all day. Dr. Melendez says he's willing to try just about anything to get more shots in arms because this pandemic, he says, is not over. So I'm seeing people die. I'm telling you, it's still there. Our numbers have not decreased less than 100 in the hospital ever. Why? Why have we stayed at 120 for the last six weeks or more or less? Why haven't we gone to 60, 40, 30, 20? Why can't people understand that? So for us, it's, it's become more of a, isn't anyone listening to me? Doesn't anyone pay attention? Dr. Stacy Obide, who's an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UT Health San Antonio, says vaccine hesitancy does exist in communities of color and for good reason. There's just there's so many layers to it. And, you know, we we have our, our national history uh, of how particularly uh, Black and brown populations have been mistreated uh, by the medical establishment. Uh, But you have to think, too, outside of that, too, just local histories, too. And so uh, healthcare providers, public health officials really need to think about all the layers. It could be uh, some national issues that have that have happened over centuries. But also, is there something unique to the city or town that you live in that has some history behind it that is not being uh, adequately addressed or discussed that could be contributing to that, especially intergenerational approach? You know, we have a lot of households that have more than one generation in the household. And how does that impact the family's interest confidence in getting something like the COVID vaccine. And so uh, we have to be honest and realistic about that uh, and how a lot of the atrocities that have happened will impact willingness to get vaccinated, for sure. Dr. Obai doesn't like the term vaccine hesitancy because she says it kind of puts the onus on those who have good reason to be suspicious of the medical establishment to just get over it. It doesn't consider history or context, and it really just dismisses these very legitimate concerns. Well, people aren't just going to get over it. So how do folks in public health help build confidence in the vaccine in African-American communities? I I think the the biggest thing that I hear from, and speaking specifically from uh, the Black population, uh, is one, individuals who are talking about the vaccine, talking about 
the the importance of getting it, how it will help uh, to have people who look like them actually talking about uh, the vaccine and the safety of the vaccine. I think that's the biggest thing that I hear from the community is that's great, but none of those folks look like me. So I'm not going to trust this. Uh, and even when individuals do look like them, we still have uh, our jobs to build the confidence in the safety of the vaccine, how it will help, how it works. There's still a lot of misunderstanding with how it works. People are thinking, for example, oh, it's like getting the influenza vaccine where uh, you get this this dead virus that, and, and it's, it's very different. And so uh, on a I'd say on a weekly basis, I'm having conversations with my patients who are African-American about the vaccine itself, um, their concerns about it, giving them time to discuss their, their own concerns about the vaccine. I've even had people talk about educating uh, hairstylists, uh, barber shops, places where people go frequently and have conversations. Uh, I think, you know, if we can begin to think around the box, maybe outside the box of who those individuals are and how to equip them with the information it is a great way to help close the gap um, to access. And it doesn't only have to be doctors and nurses and community health workers who look like them. Primary care. Uh, I think primary care providers are at, to me, one of the best places to discuss the vaccine just because uh, primary care providers are, are, are there to build trust with their patients in the communities that they serve. Obide thinks candid conversations are the key to increasing vaccination rates among Black people specifically, but really for everyone who may have concerns about any of the vaccines. I think the simplest take home message is that if we can get as many people access to the vaccine, but also access to a, a reputable and safe place to ask hard questions about the vaccine, too, I think those are, are both need to be there. Um, so that, that's my hope is the goals are to get people uh, correct scientifically based information in a safe place uh, and to get for those who are ready to get them access to get the vaccine. So we're in a weird place right now, right? Well, we've been in a weird place for well over a year. So so I guess it's more accurate to say we're in a, a surreal place right now. More than 100 million Americans are fully vaccinated. They can live without the incessant dread that on the off chance they do get infected, they'll experience severe disease or die. They can stop wearing masks outside and inside, according to new guidance from the CDC on May 13th. For them, the pandemic can feel over, like ancient history almost. And now in the United States, there are vaccines approved for everyone ages 12 and older. And there's plenty of vaccine for every eligible person in the United States. I mean, it's a miracle, really, considering where we were in May 2020, just a year ago. But many 
aren't getting it. So several states are rejecting their full allocations of the vaccine. They won't use them, they say. Fewer and fewer people are getting them. This, while elsewhere in the world, people are desperate for vaccines as variants crush their countries under the weight of rising cases and deaths. It's, it's disorienting. Surreal. So what's the state of the pandemic in May 2021? Uneven. And the virus remains a threat to all of us. It continues to take advantage of unvaccinated populations to mutate, to change. And it continues to have plenty of unvaccinated people to infect and to kill. This pandemic isn't even close to over, whether you're fully vaccinated or not. But everyone who's listening to this show could do something to get the world closer. You can get fully vaccinated. Not just one shot if you're getting a two-shot vaccine, but both shots. Or get the J&J if you only want to take one shot. Get your kids vaccinated when they're eligible. Do what you can to give the virus no place to go in your home, your town, or your country. Cut off its transmission routes. Then help others around you get their shots, your extended family, your friends and neighbors, people who don't have a ride or whatever limits their access. Help them. And people who have questions, don't fight with them on Facebook. Be kind. Be respectful. Point them in the direction of good information, their primary care doctor, their local county health department. Help them find good information because there's no shortage of bad information for them out there on the internet. That's how you do your part. Get your shot. Help others get theirs. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Sound design and music by Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Special thanks to KERA's Stella Chavez and TPR's Jerry Clayton for their valuable reporting on this show and Mark Mehmet for his continuing contributions. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Petri Dish is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.